Easter weekend is run, done and won. And after five weeks of footy, we have nine teams, yes, nine teams on three weeks. But atop the pile sit the Cats and the Saints, which means that many in the footy media, including you, Gordo, will be eating humble pie rather than leftover hot cross buns come Tuesday morning. Casey has been managed this week, citing a bit of larynx awareness. So the late inclusion for this pod is one Fiona Bell. She's a devout dogs fan, a music connoisseur, a culture connoisseur, a very, very, very tolerant friend and comrade, and also a Sydney cider who came to Melbourne and still hasn't left, perhaps for the betterment of all involved. So, team, welcome. Thanks for having us, JB. Thank you, Jack, for that Fantastic introduction. So he's become very expert at this now. <laughs> Obviously, a first question that I have: If you're a Sydney insider, how can you brag for the dogs? Well, this is a this is an interesting question. Let's cut to the chase there. <laughs> yeah. It's not, 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 not dilly dally. I'm just like as soon as you hear and a Sydney insider that brags for the Western Bulldogs. I know. I like to, you know, I like to be a bit different. But um, that is generally people think I'm going to be a Sydney Swans supporter. I guess how I became a Western Bulldogs is a bit of a unorthodox story. Um, I'm a first generation AFL fan. My parents are from the UK. We weren't brought up watching the footy at all, apart from uh, International Rugby Union. Um, but my uh, how I became a Western Bulldogs fan, basically, um, <laughs> I had a relationship with one of the, the Bulldogs players and that was kind oh. of threw me dire- <laughs> directly <laughs> into, into, into the Western Bulldogs world. And um, I, I hadn't really watched much footy before um, having that relationship. So, you know, it feels like the right thing to do to, to continue continue on being a very loyal supporter of the doggies. It would really throw a spare in the works, the relationship. <laughs> if you had, I don't have no previous team, but I'm just going to bag for Fremantle. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Like I know, I know we're dating, but um, yeah, I'm just going to go for a completely different team. Yeah. Um, but I think I've been lucky enough in the, I guess it's been about six or seven years that I've been a doggy supporter to have, you know, really ridden the wave and seen seen a grand final. So I'm I'm pretty I'm fairly happy with my my decisions. Um, mm. So that's yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy to be a doggy supporter. So without wanting to <laughs> stick the boot in, yes. that relationship clearly <laughs> over, and you still go to the footy and you're still interested. And so we went to Easter Monday uh, as neutrals today, and I think we're going to the Richmond Bulldogs game in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so yeah. what sort of keeps you coming back, despite the fact that. Yeah, it's now clearly not because you're supporting one of yeah. players. Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, that's I was kind of th- brought into the world of footy through that relationship, but I quickly became a fan of the game and I was like, why haven't I really watched this before now? It's just, it's it's a world away from kind of the rugby league of, of Sydney and it's just such a fantastic and entertaining, entertaining game to watch. And um, just I love being at the footy. I love... Um, talking to, about the footy with my friends. I love kind of being in that world and having it kind of part of my, part of my identity. So, yeah, I, I would never get rid of footy. It's a good part of the Melbourne, Melbourne lifestyle. So yeah. we just came back from the Easter uh, Monday game, Hawthorne Geelong. We saw that one of the greatest players of all time get booed, Gary Ablett. <laughs> he got do booed you, many times. Do you throw in a cheeky boo? For your previous partner, because obviously you have reason, <laughs> you have reason to do that. I mean, it doesn't make perfect sense. Yeah, that's just that um, solo boo when he gets the footy. <laughs> Everyone's like, "What's going on there?" No, I am. Um, Long story. I'm um, no, I'm not that kind of gal. Um, I'm not really a booer, and uh, yeah, I'm more about supporting supporting the fellas and supporting the boys. And I actually really like seeing him do well and and um, 
Yeah, I guess it's more of a supporting kind of. Yeah. yeah. Good on you. Much better person than I. And me. So, do you find yourself, and this is really a question for Casey, shout outs, um, doing things to fit in as a fan in Melbourne? From someone that came from outside this world, have you yeah. noticed yourself behaving in a certain manner to manage to make friends and not alienate people? Um, that's a good question. I, I, it's funny because I guess I wasn't really. I kind of have always been a footy fan since being in Melbourne and I, and I kind of don't really have that separation. But I think since moving to Melbourne, I've, I guess you just have to have more of an awareness of what's going on and you kind of have to be across more of the games. And I guess that's kind of something that I've pushed myself into doing. And um, it, yeah, I was kind of readjusting to from being, you know, a partner into being like a, a normal fan. Um, so I guess I've... I've had to kind of just, yeah, have a better understanding of, you know, the whole footy landscape. But um, no, I think I'm just authentically myself as a fan. Yeah. So you don't think that, so you think it came very much from a place of wanting to enjoy it for yourself mm. rather than wanting to fit in. Yeah, exactly. I, I, look, I don't know what the expectations are as as a footy fan. Like, I, I don't feel like I kind of buy into a lot of the... Um, Right, like you know, there's all this kind of history and stuff that I don't, I don't necessarily know about, and rivalries, and these are the people you boo, and these are the people you support, and stuff like that. But I don't think that's something that I have really um, kind of bought into, and I don't think that's part of my footy, footy uh, fan life. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's pretty like continuous with all the other interviews we've had. Is that like there is no way to be a footy fan? Yeah, you just be a footy fan exactly. the way you want to be a footy fan. Mm. Just go to the footy. That's pretty much like, that's it. You've, you've, your mission accomplished. You are now a football fan. Tick. So how have you observed sporting culture differing to Sydney? So what have you found different about Melbourne and how they interact with their game? I think um, I think the sporting culture in Melbourne is much better. No competition, I think. Correct answer. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I think Sydney has a lot of challenges in its in its sporting culture. and um, Like? Well, f- I guess the first thing is there's more codes competing for for people's attention, um, and that's in itself a, a challenge. And I think actually the accessibility and getting to games. And I know that's something a lot of my friends um, complain about, like going out, having to go out to Homebush for a for a, like a great footy game. Homebush is like a soulless place. It's so hard to get there. It takes ages. There's only kind of one train line in and out. Um, you know, your Manly Eagle supporters aren't want to going to want to trek out to, to Homebush to to see and a footy game. They would never want to leave Manly, really. Exactly. <laughs> and um, I think, yeah, the public transport, the location of the stadiums, I think that's a real challenge for, for you know, the casual sporting fan. Um, mm. Yeah, in terms of the different codes, I think... <laughs> I, I was chatting to some of my friends about this over the weekend, but a lot of them see I, th- I think the question the purpose of why people go to to sporting matches in Sydney I think there's especially in AFL and also rugby union because rugby union's kind of the sport that all the the rich um, North Shore um, private school boys play when they're growing up so um, they're kind of heading out to the rugby union games um, and I think also the AFL games and it's it's very much about kind of the social aspect and it's about being seen in the members' stand, and it's um, you know it's about the bants, and it's about that's that's kind of um, I think that's what a lot of 
you know, people see as being like a fan of one of those sports is. Um, in terms of rugby league, it's a funny sport. I don't particularly like it. Um, I think I think it has, if you like, had to rely on cliches, people would say it's a it's a bogan sport. Um, <laughs> which I don't necessarily, I don't know if I agree with. I've got a lot of friends who like it, but aren't necessarily Bergens. But um, I think it's 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 a sport that it's hard to get into, and it's a sport, and there's you know there's cheerleaders and there's players behaving really badly, and it's it's I don't know it's so stop start, and it's 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 hard I think as a as a fan to get into, whereas. When you come to an AFL footy game down here, it's just, it's so entertaining. Um, there's good, there's good vibes. Yeah, I think it's just, it's just a completely different ball game. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think yeah, it's, it's just a much better place to be a sports fan. And you know, on, on a weekend, you know, it's a nice day. People are like let's go to the footy. Whereas in you're in Sydney, you go let's go to the beach or something like that. Like there's, yeah, there's a lot of different challenges I think um, for, for sports um, especially for being a casual sports fan in Sydney so um, very happy to be here as an AFL fan. I think well I think <laughs> that experience also is, is very Melbourne as opposed to like Victoria and New South Wales. Yeah that's true. Because you look at like I think I think Melbournians are like uh, in, innately sports driven people because yeah. we have the MCG hmm. and it's just it's Unless it's a specifically large game like today or Anzac Day or the Grand Final, you can pretty much just go, oh, I can get there in half an hour. I'll, yeah, I'll get exactly. a seat. It's not, yeah, it's not that three-hour trek. It's not that, oh, it's, they're playing at Bookvale Oval. There's only 17,000 seats. Maybe mm. it's going to be sold out. I'll be stuck on that hill. Mm. Yeah, it's not, let's go to, yeah, wherever. Yeah, in Melbourne, it's very much like I can just catch a train to Flinders Street and walk and yep. it'll be fine and I can exactly. grab a coffee on the way and I can do all the other Melbourne cliches all along the way. <laughs> we had a very cliched Melbourne day, didn't we? Yeah. We did. Went out for brunch and then <laughs> went to the footy. Yes. In terms of different types of sports, though, mm. I did. I do agree. I've been – because I'm actually a league fan first. Mm. Mm. Sorry, up. I'm no, sorry. No, that's fine. But I, I like to consider myself part of the Venn diagram that is league fan and not both. Um, but I think it is like a very antagonistic sport mm. and very um, – like homogenous as well in the sense that one body type kind of plays rugby league. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you go to rugby league games and especially ones that have, like, deep uh, rivalries, mm. like a set of origin, and mm. it's hugely antagonistic. And you get the same at footy, but usually, like, like AFL antagonism is towards most of the umpires, yep. unfortunately. <laughs> and usually it's it's outward, so it's at the general play, maybe a specific play or whatever. Whereas I always found that league is very much antagonistic in, within the stands, mm. closer to like UK football rivalries mm. and, mm. and it feels like it could kick off at any, like there is like a sense it's it's not very family friendly mm. and as you said when it has the cheerleaders and stuff it's like it's not very female friendly mm. a lot of the time adding yeah all the extra extra, extra stuff off the field and it's a yep. like very hard sport for just yeah people to get around unless exactly. you play and want to essentially have the aspirational goal of playing. So you mentioned that you're enjoying being a footy fan, but yep. I imagine you didn't enjoy yesterday very much. <laughs> no that was a that was a that was a hard game to get around um yeah, look, losing to Carlton's never, never a great day. Um, but you know, in the as I was saying to you earlier, JB, um, you know, I think the Blues really had a great game, and I I think they did deserve the win. But um, but yeah, the the Dogs really had a really bad day, and it was pretty dismal to watch. And I just kept on. I think half the time I was just yelling, 
no, no, <laughs> at, so, at, at the television and just and um, yeah, other prof- well profanities as well. It's just shaking my hair. They awful. couldn't bloody kick a goal. So since 2016, mm-hmm. which was obviously the glory days, how have you assessed the experience of actually being a Bulldogs fan? Because it must have been something of a letdown. Yeah, look, it's it's been a real journey and. You know, it's when I first started watching them, which was 2013-ish, so what, they finished 15th and 14th, um, and then suddenly they were up in the eight, and then now suddenly we're back out of the eight again. Um, it's, look, I think the first year after after winning the grand final was kind of like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll give them some space. Um, <laughs> we'll give them a bit of breathing space. Um, but last year was... It was pretty disappointing, and and this year, you know, the first couple of games have been really, were really fantastic, and I was really happy to see, um, you know, so many of the guys doing a really good job. But yeah, the last couple have been pretty, um, a bit lacklustre. So Bevo, Bevo, in, in, any, in any trouble, old mate Bevo? <laughs> Look, he could be. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think. I, I quite like Bevo, and I think he has made some good decisions. But I, I think he needs to maybe make a couple of changes, and and we'll see how we are kind of in the middle of the season, and then we can ask that question again. I'm going to ask you now, Gordo. <laughs> well, how much do you think for members? So, like, I think there's a couple of like when you ask that question, there's like there's nuffies, there's members, and then there's like analysts and media as the stakeholders. Mm-hmm. And so, like, analysts and media are pretty quick to go, oh just sack him, like the system's broken, just sack him. And the Nuffies will be like, no, we're with you through and through. But like, what makes a good coach for members, like members and fans? Like is it like, as you said, you like him. Mm. You like, and you've, probably, you've probably met him as well. So, yes, yeah, so, yeah. I have met so him. So it's easy for you to say that you like him. But like for a general fan, they wouldn't have really met him or if they have it to shake their hands at a charity event or whatever. But it's like, oh, I just like the way he goes about it. Is that enough to keep him or keep any coach in long term? Because Bucks has the same thing. I think Bucks had a longer leash at Collingwood because he's likable for the fans. So, like, it's not – you don't have 70,000 members in Collingwood stance being like, nah, he needs to go because he's, he's just, like, a cold person. <laughs> Whereas Malthouse, I think he would have had a, a shorter leash if he had not won a premiership. Yeah, I, it's an interesting question. I didn't think the mood going to Sunday's game towards Bolton was particularly hostile from any of the Carlton supporters, I thought. And, even, again, he's a very likable yeah, person. Even yeah. pre-game, they were – well, he's always fucking showing the ivory, isn't he? Mm. Um, so even before the game, I smiling think- for those players. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, funnily enough, that's a line I actually stole from Brendan Bolton. Um, anyway, yeah, no, they seem very supportive of him, mm. and I can't imagine that any there's really dog supporters calling for Bevo's head because I do think that he's generally still well respected and a likable character. I wonder if there's anyone in our game at the moment that isn't. I mean, Ross Lyon, would he? But even he's kind of funny in his own very. Dry he's funny, way. but he's he's a Grinch. He's an absolute Grinch. Yeah, and he plays, but, and he plays Grinch ball. People not warm to that. I kind of do. Yeah, but but also you don't brag for Fremantle. If I was a Freo, if I was a Freo fan, it's like no, this guy's pretty cold. He never wants to answer a question, and he makes us makes my team play the most dour type of football. Mm. Even though I have like Jesse Hogan and Nat Fife yeah. and Michael Waters and all these other mm. players who are electric, we play this really sad dour type of football yeah. because that's what Ross Lyon does. So when it comes to Bev, you've probably observed the feeling of broader Bulldog community. I'm assuming that se- that positive sentiment that was built on 16 hasn't gone away. Yeah, I think he's I think he's still got um, some time under his belt before before the, the fans turn against him. But um, 
Yeah, I think like what fifty four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that um, that's uh, that's the time limit. But um, no, I think, I think, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how this season kind of pans out because look, I'm not, I'm not confident over the next couple of weeks about the direction. Um, they're playing Fremantle next week over in WA, and then got. Against uh, Richmond, mm, the week, that could be a weekend after friendship defining game. Yeah, like <laughs> um, and I'm not talk to each other. <laughs> look, I'm, I'll be interested to see how he kind of responds to those two kind of obvious challenges, and and see how the players respond. And and I think then, yeah, I think then we'll, we'll maybe see how he's how he's going. Talking points you can't relate to always makes you want to wait to find a topic that... Like Gordon, the Saints are 4-1. Mm-hmm. Have you been enjoying your humble pie? Oh, you know what? On Saturday at about 5.45, I was like, you know what? I quite like this team. <laughs> like, I'm quite enjoying watching St Kilda play football. You, feel, you feeling all right? No, I was like, like up until up until they beat Melbourne, I was not convinced. They they beat poor teams playing poor foot, like less poor footy, but still poor footy. So who do they knock off? Gold Coast, Essendon. They've now beaten Hawthorne. Yeah, Hawthorne. Yep, and now Melbourne. Yep. And so yeah, Hawthorne, Essendon, Gold Coast. They all those teams played poorly, and St Kilda were just better on the day. St Kilda against Melbourne was they were good. They were top eight good. Not top of the ladder good, so I'm glad that Geelong currently sits in that position because St Kilda fans are getting ahead of themselves. But you know what? Go for it. Like sometimes you just have to enjoy what the footy gods give you. Particularly and St them, Kilda fans. And particularly St Kilda fans. And, uh, they've, yeah, they've had to deal with a lot over their history of being members and fans. So enjoy this while it lasts. And at this stage now, it looks like they're going to play – they'll probably play finals football. What did you specifically get wrong about them then? So what's happening that you didn't Everything. see? Okay. I got everything wrong. It's a very broad answer. <laughs> well, as in, like they had an injury list that was like eleven of their best twenty-two. They they like they did not see them dominating midfield. I did not see them having the speed that they found on the outside. I didn't see their forwards being a kick straight, which they still quite haven't kind of fixed. Um, and they weren't great disposals of the footy most of last year, and even early this year. But they haven't been punished on the return because they have they have that speed so they can track back. So they've made up for their mistakes. Instead of fixing their mistakes, they've plugged the holes. So I, like, I think once they come up against the better teams, you, well, West Coast bar the last two weeks, your Geelongs, um, your Collingwoods, maybe a full health Richmond, I think they'll, they'll get found out. But they're definitely in that five to eight to ten bracket now. Mm. So. Oh, and the start just puts them in such – any good start puts mm. them in hugely – you know, However, there have been teams that have gone eleven and zero and then the missed finals. So. so the question I put to you, Jared, is if if the Swans bottom out, if by round fifteen, sixteen they're they're fifteenth on the ladder, they've 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 bottomed out. The American model, and people keep telling me that the that we're following the American model of sport. I think if the if if we had if we have followed the American model that the trading Buddy or Buddy leaving for a one last tilt at a contender would be something that would happen. So the Buddy <laughs> trade chat. You're a, you're a Sydney sider. Why would you want to live in Sydney when you could live in Melbourne? Yeah, is it that good? <laughs> well, I think Buddy has a pretty nice house, doesn't he? I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, and a pretty nice girlfriend. Yeah, exactly. But could he not have a pretty nice house and a pretty nice girlfriend living in Melbourne? Or I Brisbane. Know. I think I think uh, just into well, the Sydney nice only deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Look. That was part of the ambassador <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, Here's your house, here's your wife, and uh, here's your $10 million. Corner. That wasn't very work. It wasn't. Um, look, I th- I would imagine, he's, he's a, is he a Melbourne boy? Yeah. 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 And also, I mean, I guess the advantage is being out of the limelight. Like, you wouldn't mm. walk down the Sydney streets looking for... He AFL does get star. papped all the oh, time. Yeah, he's he's like the most recognisable AFL player, isn't he? Hmm. So, like, I don't. I think wherever he goes, he's going to be noticed. And also, like, he's a very tall, like, tattooed heavily man. tattooed man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and like, it's either going to be like he's a he's a gangster or he's a professional sports person. Like, it's going to be very hard for him not to stick out. He's and definitely also, not a gangster. He's wearing too much Versace. No, that's exactly why he would be a gangster. <laughs> But um, I think that those rumours have been pretty much shut down, haven't they? Yeah, Johnny Longmire teed, yeah. teed up on them. Well, they weren't rumours. Didn't wasn't wasn't the like the origin that Bob Murphy wrote an article in the Age, and his whole thing is like he writes hypotheticals on a Thursday or something, and then he repeats those things, like reuses that article as a talking uh, talking head segment with Jared Waitley on the radio, and they just said this is hypothetical, but if you were Sydney, you're not going to make the finals this year, probably. If you're a buddy, you probably want to play finals. Do you just do a LeBron in an ideal world and make it happen? That was that was the conversation, and then all of a sudden it's like, <laughs> oh my god, buddy's on the move. Yeah, and everyone kind of then, and then Tom Morris wrote the hypothetical how he would get back to Hawthorne romance story. Mm. Um, but yeah, I feel like it came from a position of, oh, this would be fun, and it's like round five, and we tried footies buggered last week and it didn't work, so now let's start buddies coming back to Melbourne. Yeah, buddy to Collingwood, like where are they going to have the cap space, please? Yeah, and I think what. The Australian media, especially Melbourne footy media, doesn't have that American media does that think sp- think piece space. So it happens all the time and like writers in America would just go, oh, here's my here's my trade values. Like these guys won't get traded, but if they were, this is what they're worth and this is how you'd make it work and this is the best situations for the clubs that make sense. Well, there's not really that space in the mainstream media. It's hard news and it's results and then it's hot takes. And so when someone writes a think piece, it's like, well, it's not hard news and it's not a result, so it must be a hot take. And so now it's like a rumour. That's how it kind of fit in. So I think that's how it started. Do you and think clubs down here would want him? Yeah, but then, like, there's so many problems with mm. how you would do it. And then my question is, like, what are you getting? You're probably going to get four years. He arguably, you either have to have a lot of cap space or he has to take a pay cut. So, but, like, yeah, you can basically have the Well, no, you just do the... This is not going to happen. This is not a rumour. This is not a source. <laughs> Don't start another... Media warfare after this. But you just do what Gary Ablett did. Mm. So he votes out. Sons have to pay half of his salary. So Swans have to pay half of Buddy's salary. And he goes wherever he wants. Yeah. I mean, the reality is I think if he wanted to, there would be a way to get done. Mm. Absolutely. I, I, don't, I wouldn't speculate as to where he would go. I mean, he could end up in a bloody St Kilda jumper. And everyone said know. it wouldn't work for Ablett. And it's worked perfectly this year. He's back in probably their best three or four. And he has days like today where he kicks two snags, jumps on someone's head, has 20-odd touches, turns the game wins in the game essentially. So but he can do that. And I think that will be the difference now in his in his period of his career where he can be the impact player, not the workhorse. Chancellor Atkins to Rowan. Almost. Dalhouse. Ablett back to back perhaps. Gary So that's a good change of thread. You're not a booer. I didn't notice any particular particularly negative emotions. So when you see someone like Gary Ablett today was probably worth the price of admission. Mm-hmm. So when you see fans booing him, what's your immediate take? Well, I I'm I'm I was actually going where's where's that coming from? Is it is it from does he have some sort of is it just because he's a 
you know, historically a Geelong player and there's, and you know, Hawthorne uh, fans are going to boo him. I'm like, is it because of what he's like said, the Israel Salah thing or the weekend? Um, so I was just, I, I was questioning where that was, where that boo was coming from. I kind of um, guessed that it would be kind of just a Hawthorne Geelong mm. rivalry yeah. um, thing. But I, I, I did notice it was just particularly him. Um, yeah, but there is history because obviously Ablett Senior being yeah. the figure that he was and then the rivalry with Hawthorne has kind of, they, they've been the pinnacle Geelong figures in that. Yeah. Well, and there's also, you could make a highlights reel out of what they've done. Well, no, just just Junior alone breaking Hawthorne fans' hearts. Yeah, and like that's why sitting on his head was very old, like very reminiscent yeah, and of his the, old man. Oh, no, well, a signature no, the, moment. the inside out banana from the boundary is more, <laughs> is more Ablett areas that he's yeah, done to them yeah. to yeah, beat them in prelims and... All sorts of all so sorts that, of moments. Yeah, so that's part of it. But you had a thing, a thought on the Falau side of things that you shared with us today. Yeah. So I, if it is, I think. So from my experience at the games, Hawthorne fans are booers as a collective. Mm-hmm. They love they love a bit of a boo. So they like West Coast fans. We'll put them all in one boat. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Fine. Stereotyping. And, like, and, like, and they, they they love to boo umpires. And they actually, there's two types of boos. So they had like the hard, nasty, deep boo to Ablett, and they had like the high, whiny Lee Matthews voice boo to the umpires, which is more of like a boo whinge, which is very impressive. How I have a, a group of a group of fans can just like organically create two different tones for two different situations. It's immense. Well done, Hawthorne fans. Shout outs. Um, but yes, read their Ablett thing. I think for them, and then it's like an excuse. So, oh, we're vaguely aware of this thing that happened. Didn't you like that post? And then without any of the other context, they're just like, cool. Gives us some, it gives us, that's our reason for today. That's why we're booing him. We'll get away with it. It'll be great. Let's boo away. And they did. And for mine, I, I think it's a little bit unjust. Or A, he's an amazing player. So I don't really like seeing the grades get booed. But B, like it, unlike Falau, who doubled down, tripled down, tried to sue his employer and basically didn't see or want to have any conversation about it, Ablett did the opposite and went to his teammates, went to his coach, went to the AFL and said, like, look, what's – like, obviously you know my beliefs and you obviously know my take, but what's your take? Is this okay? Can we still get along? Can we still, yeah, work together? Can we still, yeah, be in a club together? And they came to an agreement and then eventually took his life away and he apologised and he recognised the impact that he had on others. And, it was, you know, that's from my limited take on Christianity, that's very Christian values. He's like doing others what he won't do unto him. So he kind of did the right thing after doing the wrong thing, which is in honesty it's all totally fine for like it's a like. So he went, that's a mistake. I'm sorry. And now let's all get on with it. And I think that's what they should do. So we want access to the players in the media, don't we, Andy? Yeah, most definitely. We do. So last night, uh, Brisbane and Luke Hodge kindly provided uh, Channel 7, sorry, on Thursday night with access here. Abby Holmes interviewing him. Yes, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's great access, OK? So you're a, a sportsman or sportswoman yourself. I am. As a, as a dedicated and committed and uh, excellent hockey player in your own right. So if someone came up to you a la Luke Hodge on Thursday night and stuck a microphone in your face while you were lying down on the boundary line getting a massage, not that that happened in <laughs> local Victorian League women's hockey or any local Victorian League hockey, how would you respond? Look, I probably I probably wouldn't be that impressed and I probably wouldn't be able to give that much insight in that moment. I'd probably be sweating. I'd probably be desperate for some water, probably wanting to hear what my coach has to say maybe chat to some of the teammates. I don't think my mind would be on what um, what hot take can I give this journal whilst I'm getting a little rub down. Um, yeah, so I, like, I guess I kind of empathise with Hodgie in that situation. 
Yeah, absolutely. I don't understand. We talked about this about access after the, uh, reviewing the Grand Funnel video. Correct, yeah. And that was different because that was like they were organically mic'd up. You, you get what you can out of it. So if he was mic'd up somehow without it being a breakable mic or whatever and then you just package up Hodgie on the mic. Yeah, that sounds, makes, sounds of the game. Sounds yeah. of the game type of thing. But like what, why, why are you asking him questions when he's getting a rub down? Mm. Like it doesn't make any sense. I, like the quarter time, half time, post match are already annoying enough. That's, as, a, as we said, that's kind of faux access. It's fake access. And so you're a producing wizard in your own right. Who organises or decides that that interview is a good idea? I think it's the channels that the broadcasters wanting to get bang for their buck. So they've, they've just broken the records on the recent broadcast deal and they're like, cool, so how do we, how do we just squeeze at every possible value point, value add from our broadcast rights deal, and that is, we want we want players when we want them. We want to be in the change rooms. We want to be, but they don't. And then the the problem with these, the problem with mainstream media, in my opinion, is because you can't you can't attack a niche audience. So you can't go up to Hodge and be like, talk about the breakdown here of the A one and the A two. What just happened in that in that stoppage? Because it's you, then that's like ten percent. That's like, that's a conversation he could have because he would have just had it with the coach. So it's like, tell us. A he's not going to tell you like they're inside team tactics on the mic when the other coaches are listening. And then B, only probably 10% of that audience who's watching on TV would understand it. So it's like we want to have Hodgie because that's important access, but we can only ask some questions that 90% of the audience understands and our viewership's a million people at once. Probably more because it's Good Friday. Like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Here's Sloan in the pocket. Eddie, Harbrow, Eddie. Oh, oh, yes. oh yes. Betts, a generational player in every sense of the word. Who kicked it better, Betts or Ablett? Betts. I'd take Betts's. He was falling backwards. He was, he was, he was, his the was, studying degrees of difficulty was uh, a little bit higher. And the only thing with the degrees of difficulty is, and I'm not knocking anyone, the pockets at Adelaide Oval are not shallow. Are not shallow? Sorry. They're, they are shallow. But, um, I don't know. Was it the deep end or the shallow end? I don't know. Um, yeah, okay. So that it's not as difficult as it would be at the MCG from that position. Correct, yeah. It's... Still difficult. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And this was, it was just the way that, oh, it was perfect. It was just such a beautiful thing. So when you look at Eddie Betts, how will you sort of look back on his career in 10 or 15 years' time? He's a highlights package and he's an impact player. And he's, yeah, and like he's one of the, one of the greatest small forwards. He's the greatest small forward of this generation, generation being quite a tightly defined. So mm. he's like pre-Stevie Milne. So I think he's taken that mantle. Mm. And it'd be up there, like it'd be Daycost, Milne, Betts. Yeah. If you could play three, if you could play three small forwards, you probably can't. Probably have to put one on the bench or one misses out. So it's between those three. In, and because I think prior to that, like your small forwards were really kind of like dour. Your tough in and unders. That whereas, was, yeah. Forward they, pockets. Like, yeah. Like Daycost kind of was the pioneer of inside out bananas. Doing, doing freaky stuff, which probably coaches prior to Dacos would have said, why are you doing that? Like, you're not playing for my team yeah, ever you're, again. You're a lair. Yeah, lair. you're a lair. Yeah, yeah, you're lair rising. Whereas then Dacos kind of went, no, nah, no, nah, that's a goal. That's six points, Chief. I'm going to keep doing that. <laughs> I hope that happened. Yeah, and then and then obviously Milne was like, grew up watching Dacos yeah. and then Betts, to a degree, would have grown up watching Milne. So. Yeah, because that was Greg Baum's contention in the age, that Betts will be remembered 
in a similar vein to Peter Dacos. Mm. Partly because of not just what he does, but the manner in which he does it, which I think is something I can probably empathise with. Do you think what kind of separates him from those two, though, is he doesn't really or often do it in big games? Has he had a big breakout final? Has he had... Unfortunately, he played for Carlton, so... (laughs) They haven't, yeah, they didn't have the opportunity to, for him to have a big breakout funnel. But even for Adelaide, like, he didn't really show up grand funnel day. Well, no one did. Yeah. So uh, it's like... Thanks for so, reminding me. <laughs> but is, uh, is it, like, because w- the other person in that conversation would be Cyril. Yeah. And that's probably the difference if you were comparing them. But I also think you can just take them on face value and both go, gee, you're amazing players who had different sets of circumstances around you. Because hmm. I know, I mean, I know Cyril got four cracks at the, the grand final cake. I know... You know, Bet's got one. Yeah. Um, Cyril also, yeah, won three and has a norm. So Yeah, I, but that's also – I think it's a bit silly to say that Adelaide result, Bet's could have played out of his ass and they wouldn't have won. They were so far off it. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've, and I, I'm loath to judge a player on one performance. I think it's a legitimate question, but I think there's so many other factors that go into that big No, 100%. But it's a, it's a very abstract think tanky type question. Mm. But when you have to rank them, and if you want to say, like, is how will he well, be if remembered? You could, if you could go, he'll be remembered as a guy that kicks amazing goals in round five. Yeah. He doesn't have that peak moment. Well, he doesn't have. Could, yeah. yeah. I, I'm loath to ask this, but if you could pick Cyril or Betts, who would you pick? Cyril. Yeah. And I'd probably. And it's, it's not even not in a thought. Unfortunately, have to go the same way. Well, it's not unfortunate. It's just that often in sports, people are better than you. Happens. Very few are but better. He than is. Very few are better than Eddie Betts. And his hamstrings are a lot more dexterous than Cyril's. Yes. So, you know, we've still he's still playing. Um Cyril is not. Um, although watch that space. We made plans to kiss the sun at night. Hopeless dreamers, hopeless times. Shedding skin you So People's question this week: Should Anzac Day have pre-game entertainment? And the follow-up to that is: What does that entertainment actually add to any spectacle, but especially a ceremony that is so, um, I guess, sacrosanct now? It's quite a it's a day essentially of not not just of mourning, but of I guess introspection and reflection. So I'm going to start with you, Fee, because you're probably someone that hasn't been going to Anzac Day footy or watching Anzac Day as your way of commemorating Anzac Anzac Day itself for as long as we have. So how would you go about commemorating Anzac Day without the footy? Look, generally, look, I'm not someone that kind of goes to, um, you know, ceremonies or anything like that generally. Um, I enjoy the day off normally is how I <laughs> how I celebrate Anzac Day. Last last year we had a little bit of a footy watching party at ours. Um, yeah, that's, look, it's not a kind of, day of immense introspection or, or commemoration for me. Um, but, yeah, I think this is an interesting an interesting question. So why is it not a day of immense introspection for you? <sighs> that's, a, that's a good question. I, I guess, look, I guess I grew up, you know, you kind of grow up and you go to school and you go to these Anzac Day ceremonies and, and you know, I'm not an Australian by birth and I'm, I was born in Hong Kong. My parents are from the UK and I guess, I don't know if that's any part of it, but I think it might be. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm, I, maybe I'm a bad Australian for not, for not going to um, ceremonies or not kind of taking the time to, to think about it more. Um, but but by, by the sound of what you're saying, that also might be learnt from your 
Mm. Be your your old. Exactly, and I don't think it hasn't ever been part of you know the thing that we do together as a family or anything like that. Um, so I guess for me it was I kind of learned it at school, and that's that's kind of where that Anzac um, history and tradition was learnt for me. Mm. Yeah, you got it. Well, I'm quite similar. I don't actually have my day of introspection when it comes to wartime and the consequences of war. Has always been Remembrance Day. Yeah, November 11th. Which, yeah. which is literally in the name of it. Mm. Whereas Anzac Day for mine seems more like this forced construct. And I suppose, yeah, we, again, you learn about Anzac Day, you learn about Gallipoli, and almost the myth of Gallipoli in, in primary school and early high school. But when I talked to my grandfather about it, he didn't serve in Gallipoli, he served it, uh, in Europe, it was like he was ashamed of it and he was like, I went there as a young, he faked his age to get in, so he was like under 18. And then was like, I don't know why I did that. I was I was looking for an adventure and I realised that we didn't get that and I, he just didn't want to talk about it and he didn't really. And so and that was the, that was the story for the vast majority of diggers was like they they came back from war broken humans and that's what war does to people. So it's, it's quite strange. We've had these conversations before and we've been to these events in the last kind of two years since we've been doing the podcast where they have this correlation between the Anzac myth and the myth of like a strange sporting legendary and how they can cross over. And I suppose in footy, especially being a predominantly male contact sport, there's all these myths where they intertwine and the next man up philosophy and all these things where we kind of lean on war terminology to, to create sporting commentary. And the whole thing about Anzac has always been a little bit weird for mine because not, they're not the same. Like they're, they're not even close. And I don't mm. understand why you can... I don't understand why sporting events almost make it feel like a celebration, and we lean down that almost American path. You, you spend like what, what time is like when you say what does pre-match entertainment or entertainment during a football game yeah. add to sport? It's more what does military ceremony and military um, reflection add to sport? It's because in America they do that almost monthly. Is mm. every fourth game of baseball is military awareness round, and you dress up in your in your camos and they wear special uniforms and they celebrate yeah. a, a league of their um, yeah, the defence force. We do that once a year, but it has the very same vibe where we go, like, this is, the, this is the biggest mark of respect and this is the biggest role that these people play. And I don't – that doesn't reflect my philosophy on, on war and defence and that kind mm. of stuff. And I don't think it reflects the great no. majority either. I, well, what am I – always concerns with Anzac Day is what isn't spoken about. So it's very centred around Gallipoli, which is one war, and there's there's Vietnam. And it was really interesting in the Howie Games episode that was done with Buckley recently, he mentioned his dad served in Vietnam um, and then came back and it was one of those things where it kind of was very, very quickly forgotten. So there's that, there's obviously Korea, there's World War Two. there's also the Frontier Wars, which I think when we talk about Australian wartime history, we tend to kind of on our own soil, think really about the bombing of Darwin and not a lot of it, not a lot else. So mm-hmm. we kind of ignore our own origin story in the frontier wars as well. And so I think that that's one of the reasons that for me it sits uncomfortably. It'd be very hard though for for Anzac Day to incorporate the frontier wars as well, because it's not like it's not like other countries. Because other countries have days like def, like defence or service day um, celebrations or or days of remembrance separate to Remembrance Day, but not many will, like, remember a civil war, which is what the frontier wars were, mm. essentially. Yeah, and I just think it sits uncomfortably if this is a day that's so 
big in our minds as part of our national identity. Mm. It ignores that. Yeah, but that's that's the the ignorance. Yeah, the ignorance of the frontier wars. I think is a subset of a bigger problem about how we. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, deal with deal with the indigenous population on a on a political level, on a mm. remembrance level, on a teaching level, on an educational level. I think that's just one of the many problems. But I don't think it's a problem with Anzac Day because literally the Anzac didn't even exist as well. Like it's it is remembering mostly the myth of Gallipoli, and then everything that happened post. Mm. I think it. Yeah, it's yeah. something that, and I I guess even Gallipoli itself is. An interesting um, day, purely because we were foreign invaders as well. It, mm. as, there's elements of that narrative that don't sit, and we were also, and this is something that's we're talking about the game in time of war as the book club today. But it's mentioned that you know Churchill was genuinely disliked because of Gallipoli until World War Two mm. happened, and I think a lot of the stuff that happened between wars and sort of how we evolved has been maybe forgotten. And if you've seen the film Gallipoli. It's, that's very much the narrative of that is that we're just consistently Australian men are getting sent over the trenches by British mm. order. Mm. Um, and it's incredibly grim. Now, to cut it back a little bit and get on to the pregame entertainment question. So, Birds of Tokyo are playing. You're mm. not a big Birds of Tokyo fan. Look, on a personal level, no, but I, I think they're generally inoffensive as, as a band. Which is, which is part of the problem, but, like, are they are they popular? I think they are quite popular. Look, they, they've, they've been around for about 10 years and I think they haven't been kind of haven't had music in the last couple of years, but they did have a couple a single last year, which is the theme song of the Invictus Games. Yep. And then which they're meant to be playing. Yep. And then they've got another single coming out now. Um, so they've had a couple of quiet years. So yep. they're kind of back on the scene. Yeah. And so if they're playing the theme for the Invictus Games, are they going down like a? Service route. I think I think kind of, and I remember re- I read the announcement around them playing, and and they had the drummer Adam. Can't remember his last name, but he was um, kind of saying how that was such a, an honor for them to play at the, at the games, and that was kind of was a tie into the Anzac mm. Anzac Day performance. Mm. So I guess there is that kind of tenuous link there. Yeah, it just felt reading that press release. Uh, they've got a new tour that they've just announced, so it did feel. A little bit PR-y mm. in terms of... Of course them. it is. Like, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. And it can't not be. I just wonder whether... Like, when I think about it, and I'll be there on Thursday, it's like, so what does that experience add to my match day experience on Anzac Day? And I just can't come up with anything. But when I was kind of looking into this, they've had pre-game performances the last couple of mm. years. So, uh, like, has there been this kind of outcry over the last couple of years with, with pre-game performances? I think it's just the tone of... Of of like the birds of Tokyo, like they they're a pretty like happy go lucky, mm. up, like upbeat soft rock type vibes, uh, and it's mm. like it, in my mind it doesn't quite sit. Mm. So if you had a had, yeah, well, like, you, it's, yeah, it's, they're not covering red gum and playing. He was only, I was only nineteen. Yeah, they? yeah. like well, they ca- might. Yeah, K- that don't. might be a good idea for them yeah. to do. Yeah, yeah, the first guys. <laughs> but yeah, I, because I, th- I, I still think yes, there are different, there are problems and issues with the Anzac Day narrative, but it does still, you do still go and have some level of introspection, and so I just feel like that is a little bit off with the general mood of the day. Yeah, it seems like an unpopular decision mm. to well, have them on a, play. on a like musically technical note. Do you think they're a band that's suited to playing in a stadium? Because notoriously. All music at sport events sounds bad. <laughs> they played at the AFL Grand Final. 
one of the years. Mm. So look, of Tokyo. Yeah. Which year? Oh, I think it was like probably five years ago Way or something around. And that. it would have been a very like unmemorable performance. <laughs> they, they were one of kind of a few bands that played. Um, so look, it's not their first time um, playing at the MCG. I think they're, they're kind of suited to that kind of stadium rock kind of, you know, anthem kind of vibe. Um, I don't think their music technically... Um, and I think, yeah, it's generally most people who would be going would kind of enjoy it because it's just kind of... It's quite generic. It's generic, exactly. And We made plans. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I, I was interested to see there was also some people who actually had issues with the, the name of the band as well, like the fact that it references Tokyo and Tokyo's in Japan and then the wars have been, like, been fought. Well, yeah, World War II ended. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was, I was just, you know... There's there's a lot of um, unhappy punters yeah. out there. Well, I don't know what the origin of their band name is. No. I mean, I guess it has nothing to do with World War II. <laughs> I'm pretty sure because if you, if it did have something to do with the two nuclear bombs, it wouldn't be the Birds of Tokyo because that was Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Mm, exactly. So, yeah, so that might be a slightly tenuous link. So I'm going to take you. So this has become like a mainstream part of Grand Final Day. There's always a lot of talk about the Grand Final Entertainment. So 2016, when the Dogs won, mm. was Vance Joy. And in my mind, that day is very clearly linked with his music. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but like that was when I started listening to Vance Joy, and the Killers in 2017 and Richmond. Now, because that model is, we have the little set pregame, and then we have the concert after that anyone can go to. That is kind of a full deal, and then you get Jack Rewalt singing Mr. Brightside. But and I mean, I thought the Killers did a really good job because they covered Forgotten Years. But to cut it back, does that ex- does that connection? between the band and the day exist in your mind when you think about 2016? Uh, no, not necessarily that year. Um, I think The Killers does, that really kind of takes me back. And I, I did really like their cover of, of Forgotten Years. That's um, that's a favourite of mine. Um, they've Yeah, I think if you look over like the past, I don't know, 10 or so years, it's been a real mix of... of you know, bands that are play. You get, you have your Lionel Richie. You've got, you know, Powderfinger, who Meatloaf. is so yeah, <laughs> Meatloaf. But you know, someone like Powderfinger and or like the Living End, who are just like so quintessentially kind of Australian. And is that is that the right kind of? I think that's kind of almost, and like that's maybe why Vance Joy is such a kind mm. of good choice. Well, he played uh, VFL footy for Coburg. Oh yes, of uh, course. James Keogh is his actual name, and he actually also has a couple of yarns in early footy almanacs. Yes, very mm. unknown. He unknown was um, he was in a choir with uh, you know Chet Faker. Yes, he was in yes. a choir school schoolboy choir with Chet Faker at, at St Kevin's. Would you like his music? <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. I just think that does that exist for you when you think about the Killers? No. No. Okay. So it's <laughs> but, just me. But from like a technical point of view, I like that model, mm. like pre pre game post game, because like the Super Bowl is ruined <laughs> every year. By the performance, it doesn't matter how good it is. Like I loved Beyonce's performance or her both of her performances, the mega melody with Bruno Mars, and then her own performance at Super Bowl. I love Lady Gaga's performance, but it's so weird because you literally play half of the game of football, then the whole stadium breaks into four thousand pieces, and they assemble this massive stadium show. They play it, they have to unassemble it. Halftime goes for about 45 minutes and then you're essentially just playing two games of football. So I appreciate that they don't have that elongated halftime because that that, it, does, it does kind of make the most important game of the year the least important thing on the day, which 
I appreciate how the AFL Grand Final has everything in the middle. And it's and it's like kind of low production as well. When you look at them, they're kind of just on a, on a stage on at the mm. MCG. It's not your kind of dancers, you know, um, fireworks and all that stuff that you have with the Super Bowl. Bowl. It um, is just music. Yeah, it's just music and it's there, you know, it's there for a, a good time to amp people up and that's kind of, I think, the, the purpose it serves and I, I don't think it... Why do we do it though? That's a good question. Like, is, it, is it because like Americans do it for the Super Bowl? Is it... Because I don't, like... Is it because... Like, we have so many other games of football. Every other game of football for the year doesn't have it. No, we have Simba Cam at the MCG, <laughs> like today. Or Floss Cam. I'm abs- Floss Cam was good. <laughs> I was disappointed you wouldn't come over for Simba Cam. I really I hate all of that stuff. You like, look, I'm the, I pay my ticket to go watch the football. I don't need Simba Cam. I don't need Floss Cam. I need Kiss Cam to go to wherever those crowd engagement is. I have nightmares about Kiss Cam. It's Every time I go to the footy with a girl. I'm like, if that comes up, I'm... Panicking, running away. Yeah, or like your sister. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's worse. There's worse like, a girl could be like, oh well, that just may spark thing off. But like your sister or your mother or your, oh, you know, whatever. Like your cousin. Like it's it's such a fraught. Yeah, I don't know. Is is it about giving the fans kind of that additional experience when you go to a kind of a big game like the the grand final? I and, just don't feel like that's why I would go. Well, no, no, well, exactly. I don't think that's why people go to these games. That's not why you go to Anzac Day or the grand final. But is it about trying to kind of lift lift the footy game experience? I think a lot of it's also for the TV viewer. Mm. So it's like because mm. the Anzac Day thing, they usually they'll usually have, the broadcast has a, a much longer time slot. And so it's like, how do we fill that? How do we keep you engaged? How can we try and get that extra 10% audience at peak time? So it's like everyone knows that Birds of Tokyo are playing, they'll tune in for Birds of Tokyo, and then they might actually not watch the rest of the game, but then they can say, oh, our peak audience was actually 1.3 million, not 1.15. So I think like the cynical producer side of it is all eyeballs, which is why they had the Super Bowl halftime performance because it's like, well, then we, we might actually get like drift in and out of uh, half time, so you might actually get peaks where the ads are essentially. Um, so yeah, then you can sell the ads some more. So that's that's why they do it. Because mm. and then because I think what I don't understand is what the bands get out of it. Like so, Birdshaker is selling an album. Like selling yeah. an album, is that it? Like is that because again, it's not going to be like a very memorable performance. Yeah, I, it's a weird set. It's it, tiny. It's, it's like three songs. Yeah. It's like they can't really make an mm. make an impact. Well, that's probably a question for you and you, Gordo. So you both go to a lot of gigs because you're obviously far cooler than I am, <laughs> um, and none of you ever invite me. But oh, we do. You just don't come. <laughs> well, that's true. It's I'll make pa- sure I'll give you a ticket bedtime. to the next one. Um, so, can you ever actually replicate the real experience of a concert at the sports game concert? Hell no, no. Nah. But I think the only thing that that maybe is similar is when you look at kind of the numbers who might be at like a big stadium show like, you know, Adele or Guns N' Roses or something, and that's they're, they're similar to a big game at the MCG. And I think, yeah, the, the amount of people there are like at the MCG, that's probably where the, the similarities begin to stop. Um, I don't think there's any kind of comparison. You know, people go to a concert because they want to see the musician and that the band or the musician can take them on a journey and there's kind of peaks and troughs and there's um, interaction and and that's why you go to the concert. Um, footy game is, you know, footy game's a footy game. So that the, like, think about the reverse. So I've just bought $300 tickets to see Guns N' Roses at the MCG. <sighs> Sweet child of mine. Yeah, correct. <laughs> but then pre, like their warm-up act, 
is a football game. <laughs> what? Like the warm-up bag is a football game. Who's playing? Like a small, <laughs> like a small football game. Any, anyone it could be anyone. Are they taking the piss? No, I'm, I'm oh, saying. This, like is, this, this, this is a hypothetical. This is a thing piece. This is a thing piece. <laughs> oh, <I'm just> <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you did not signpost that clearly. I, I did. I definitely oh, I just did. Don't listen well enough, right? Carry yeah. On. So imagine if that, like, if the same thing would happen. So like, I'm not here to see half the time. Walmart bands get booed off stage because they're not even there to see the Walmart band. They're just there to see the main thing. So it's, a, it's the same philosophy. You're never going to replicate a real-life gig because of that, as much as the bands we always get in Australian grand finals, both AFL and NRL, are very generic and very, like, top 40 radio, it's still going to be, like, maybe 30% of the seventy to 100,000 in there are they, like, would be fans of that band. So it's a splodgy emotional mess of yep, yep, either yep. indifference to, yeah, I love this song. And most of the time, everyone else is doing all the things you need to get done before you actually sit down to watch the game. So it's just hubris. Right, so moving on to Book Club, which this week is The Game in Time of War by Martin Flanagan. The book essentially seeks to capture footy from the beginning of, well, not the beginning of, the days after 9-11 and stops at the beginning of the Iraq War. Flanagan's central contention is that it came as a considerable relief in the tough times that he could go to the footy and for a couple of hours escape what was happening in the world. So... This is a bit of a, it's an interestingly structured book. It kind of jumps around. It's a little bit of a time capsule of what footy was like in 01, 02 and 03, the Brisbane and Collingwood years. So I guess my opening question for both of you is whether we ever exited that air of tension that Flanagan suggests we moved into after 9-11 or did it exist before 9-11 or have we gone away from that? Do we still go to the footy to get respite from events that happen in the world? I think so. I think, yeah, I think there's there's truth in that in that sentiment. I think people, you know, it's not necessarily chaotic world events, but it could be, you know, your own personal stresses and, and problems in your own life. And I think, well, especially when they're kind of on, on a, a global scale, you know, people are finding ways where they can, you know, find shared purpose and, and connect with people and, and find that sense of community. And I think... Going to the footy is a fantastic and, and really easy way of, of finding that kind of shared, um, you know, shared experience. So I, I think, yeah, I think I really am kind of agree with with that. And I think it's it's still a very current current idea. So you were in Sri Lanka really recently. Yeah. How recently? Uh, beginning beginning of the year over yep. New Year's. Yep. And so we've had in the last couple of days more than 200 people killed in explosions in Sri Lanka. So was that something when we went today that was on your mind? Like how did that affect you and did going today, I guess, help? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's such a huge tragedy and I think it, it's scary to think that I was there only a couple of months ago and Sri Lankan people are just so lovely as well and it's obviously... There was a lot of people there kind of, they were in their safe space, they were in a church um, going to celebrate with their families the Easter weekend. And it's um, it's it's hard to think that, you know, we're out on 
Easter Monday, we're kind of doing something to celebrate in our own way. We're going to go watch the footy and, and, and that, you know, these people kind of suffered, um, suffered on during the weekend. And it's, yeah, that was on my mind. And I think it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it, but it, at the same time, it kind of feels like it's, you know, footy and, and people dying and it's kind of, it's hard to kind of put them in the same basket, but, um, you do have to find your kind of, um, safe space. And, mm. yeah. and Christchurch was a week before round one. Well, that was the more interesting part for Christchurch was how they responded to their own sporting events in New Zealand. Cause I think the expectation for Australians to respond is there because of our connection with New Zealand, but like there were sporting events scheduled to happen in Christchurch. And so the rugby union was called off. The test match was called off. And the test match was called off. And then the NRL played. That wasn't in Christchurch, that was in Auckland. Um, and so obviously safety issues with the actual city probably like probably meant that, although they could almost guarantee it wasn't going to happen again, they were like, let's just, let's just take a break and get our stuff together. I mean, that's fair enough. More than fair enough. Uh, the thinking behind the Warriors playing though was like this is this is people's escape. So they actually got together as a team and said like this can be our offering. This can be what we can do to make our country feel a little bit better for eighty minutes. And mm. That's what they did, and they and so yeah, that like even the way you, you heard them in the uh, post match uh, presses afterwards, and they said like we actually wanted to make sure that we played as much as we wanted to win for our fans. It was more about playing in a way that let people think about something else. And so it was one of their most, like, about six, six rounds in now, one of their most attacking and free-flowing games. And they clearly were just like, we don't even, we don't even care about the win because, like, in reality, it doesn't matter. Like, it's, it's just sport. So let's just give everyone something to, like, enjoy in this time where people aren't enjoying anything. So that kind of plays into Flanders' role. And I think that's what the book does quite well is that he talks about moments and, and people and, yeah, actors in, in this theatre of sport that allow you to just tune out for a couple of hours mm. before you go back to, in in this book it explores war, but it, for people it's everything. I remember talking to someone, they're a St Kilda fan and I went to a couple of games with them and they had this really, just this really like ludicrous perception of like the sport in a way and they just, they just loved to like bellow even though they knew, I went, I went and watched them like in a, in a neutral game and they were very kind of like sensible and well-versed about the sport, knew all the rules. And you go see them watch a St Kilda game and they're completely different. They're like full enough enough and they're yelling at umpires and they're yelling at their own players. I was just like, why do, you, why do you do that? And her response was like, this is my – I give myself three hours a week just to like be a complete and utter fool <laughs> knowing that for the rest of the time I have to be kind of sensible and I've got, I've got kids and mm. I've got a mortgage and I'm a single mom and, like, this is my release and this is what I do. And, like, I love my team but I love what this space gives me more than even the club itself. Mm. Um, so you spoke a little bit about the people that were able to take Flanagan away. So you've got Buckley, Voss, Peter Schwab, Malthouse, Michael Long, Kevin Sheedy. He went to a couple of games with Waleed Alley. So they're people that have somewhat... I guess, disappeared in a lot of ways from the public spotlight. Um, so if you were putting together a book like this today, and I'm assuming that we've kind of agreed here that it would be appropriate to do so, who would you include in it, Gordon? So Buck- think- Buckley would probably still be there. Absolutely. Buckley would be my first. Mm. It's kind of – I feel like it's kind of different because back then it was very much – even in the early 2000s, 
footy was still very much a weekend activity. Yeah, not as seven-day narrative yeah. news cycle as it is now. It's almost 24-7 now. And it is for me because I work in football media. So it's like it is my job. So it's not it's not the same release as what it used to be unless there's – but moments today, like Gary Ablett, walk up. Like today – because, again, like I approach football now very analytically for my job and I have to do certain things and keep a level head and make sure I'm not being biased. But then even today I was just like Jason Ackermanis, hands over, hands over mouth and head, just being like, what did he just do twice in like two minutes? So that was – Turn the game. Actually changed was, the game. Today. There was a 10-minute period there where all I went was just like, how cool is it that I'm sitting 10 metres away from one of the best football players ever doing crazy stuff in front of me on a Monday where I had the day off technically, but not really. And just how fun, how fun was that? Was So th- those players. So there's, yeah, Ablett would be definitely a walk-up one. Buckley, your coach. Buckley, your coach. More so for how he, especially now, like post-grand final Buckley, like the, the really like soft-hearted, huggy, great dad Buckley, as opposed to, I think he used to be quite cold and... Like very technical and I'm very not sure. like when he was the assistant coach and stuff, he still was. Like he still is Jack, but he's like he was. He was very much like the like the football Terminator in a way. Like he's just a very like robotic, yeah. Very, yeah. very like I'm here for the wins. It's a win loss. He loved that. It's a win loss industry. That type of thing. Whereas yeah. now he's a bit more personable. Well, this would be the sort of weekend that you would write. You'd write something out of bets. I think quite comfortably hmm. in terms of like. That experience would be very similar to what if you were sat just next to the boundary line yeah. and you were there. It's the same as the Ablett experience. I would think. Buddy be on yours? Uh, maybe not the way he's playing at the moment. But no, but as in like if you, you'll be writing this book from the last probably three years. Yeah, because I remember very distinctly the grand final rematch in 2017 at Etihad was round two. It was the Dogs and the Swans. And I remember Buddy, who I've never loved because I've never seen him live often enough. Because um, his peak years, I was probably overseas, and then when I was a little bit younger, I tended to go and I'd watch Ablett, or there were other players that I would sort of sit at the MCG and observe. But I remember he got the ball twice, sixty out, left foot, you know, the familiar running on his arc, and he just dobbed like two goals mm. in the space of you know, I think it was about ten minutes, and that was probably for me where fr- I just went, yep. So who's your t- to flip this? So all of his, all of Flanner's players that he uses for escapism in this book, are like the all-time greats. And I think for mine it doesn't quite um, suspend. Rory Hilton being an all-time great. Oh, no, Rory Hilton, no. But that it doesn't focus no. on Rory Hilton too no, much. No, I mean. The most, Ro- most, but, yeah. like, but that's kind of proves my point, which is a great accidental segue. So he mentions Rory Hilton as a, as a person he can yep. use to reflect well, on. Well, so the knowledge your- of that, yeah, Rory Hilton kicks the, the goal in the Carlton-Richmond 2001 semifinal that yeah. seals the game for Richmond. Yes. Essentially, and so there's a chant that goes up with the cheer squad: "Rory Hilton, you're a tough uh, c-word," and that's yeah. I mean, and he kind of gets a bit of a mention, but not the profile that you get at Buckley. But that's a good, a good place. So, who is your? I don't know the answer to this. A bit of a Dorothy Dixer, which is one of my new favorite. Do you know the answer now. to this? Who is your player that you go to, and you just fall in love with, and respond? Over dramatically to your play. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. when you go to games, <laughs> who's the player that you go to? And it's it makes no sense. Like everyone could just be like, "What are you talking about? Yeah. Who is that player for you?" Yeah, Toby Nankervis. Yeah, Toby Nankervis. I'm, I'm just amazed that I nearly forgot that Nank the Tank. Yeah, yeah. So like, why why Nank? Because I think this is the yeah. this is what football can do. Because when you see greatness, greatness happens in all fields. You can be like, you can go to the movies and be like, wow, like 
that, that that actor is so good. Like, mm, no, the backstory to this is Richmond never had good ruckman. Mm. No, Ivan Marich was good for about two years. Yeah, and then we had Sean Hampson, who wasn't much good. And then we had before that. I remember we had Greg Stafford, who was this is early, but he was like I just remember him being so big when I was a seven year old. And then I remember that you know we just had a general hatred of them in in our household because we never had the good ruckman which manifested itself in various statements from my old man, which I won't repeat. And then Nank came along. So Nank changed footy because all of a sudden Ruckman were likeable and good. And uh, there's something about Nank. He's from Georgetown in Tasmania, so he's from a fairly uncompromising, uncompromising, just sort of unconventional background, but also a pretty working-class background. Mm. He's undersized, so he punches above his weight, playing against people like Grundy and Gorn. He's probably as important to Richmond as if you could ask me whose leg I would not like broken, he's in the five. Um, everyone else has pretty much broken their leg or gotten suspended in the last month, so it's Nang that's endured. Um, yeah, I, and I just enjoy being a nuffy and pretending that he might win the Brownlow when it's clearly not going to happen. Do you have a player like that for you? Look, I, I really, I really loved, I really loved um, Liam Pickin, and I am. Um, I feel I feel very sad. I know that you've covered this already on the podcast, but um, long time listener, first time caller. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've 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 heard a lot of your your material, um, but <laughs> I, I didn't listen to the cricket bit though. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Liam Pickin for me was just I don't know. I, every time, and I think I love the way just in that kind of small window of that I've been a doggies fan, like how he kind of progressed. Um, as a player and, and seeing him in, in, in the finals and being such a fantastic player and with his long hair, shaggy hair flowing and he's just such a nice guy as well and I, do, I have met him as well so I guess that, yeah. <laughs> that probably, um, and I, I know his, I know his um, partner as well and, and they're just lovely people. Annie Nolan, yeah. Yeah, and I, I just, um, he's, he's one of those guys that just, I love, I love seeing him play and I'm very sad that he, he won't be he won't be playing anymore. Mm. Who's yours? You don't have one, do you? I do, actually. Oh, all right. Because no, <laughs> I, I, we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago and I couldn't think of one, but actually it's obvious to me now and seeing him play today and dominate that third quarter. It's Joel Selwood. And everyone will be like, oh, he's a, he's, a, he, he's a really good – no, A, everyone will be like, oh, he's a really good player. That's not very abstract. But it's the ducking factor. He gets so much, so much vitriol for being everyone calls soft. And I was like, this guy bleeds more often – anyone else I've ever seen football. He's like the personification of like the tough nut. And, and, and yeah, this is this, because everyone will be like, that's nonsensical. Like he's a ducker, he's a cheat in inverted commas. <laughs> it's like, I don't think he is. Like he is, and for, and for mine, like my, my prism for watching sport is through playing it. Oh, yeah, having Joel Selwood as your captain would be so like reassuring. It, it's, he's, He's Michael Voss-like in these like protection of his players in today's world. In I today's think world, where you can't, thing to where, you, where you can't punch on with someone, like you can't, you can't do it that way. So you have to do it through your actions. Gaff, but yeah, and he wasn't captain, so uh, so yeah, you can't do it that way. You have to do it through yeah through performing well. And that's what he did today in the third quarter. He took the game by the scruff and was like, "My role was on the outside. Now I'm in the inside. Now I'm here doing this. Is how you do it. This is how you tackle. This is how you put on spoils. Like he does all the one percenters." And he does it consistently and has for so long for a player of his quality, he does it tough. So, yes, Ablett might be better. Yes, Patrick Danielfield might be better. Yes, Pendles. He's probably in that 
I think Pendles, Joel, Ablett are our herd Buckley Voss. Pendles? Pendles as well. Pendles is up there as well for mine. Interesting. These guys haven't won Brownlows, and I think five. They're not impact. Five's older. So oh, you, sorry, younger. So, so five's have you got with, the Brownlow trio, like Dusty Fife, Dangerfield, in a different category. To they're, your, they're, to your, they're 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 your Gen whatever's after Millennials. Okay, okay, so we're going a Gen back here. Yeah, Gen back. So it's okay. your it's your yeah. So if Flanners for Flanners, if it was Voss Buckley Heard for me, it's Pendles Selwood Ablett. Oh, Flanners would 100 percent be writing about Bob Murphy ahead of any of those. Oh yeah, but Bob Murphy's not in that <laughs> no, bracket I, of play. I know, I know. I'm yeah. just just to to add interest. So I'm going to cut it back a little bit now to Anzac Day and the book. So you read this for the first time. I read it for the second time. There's a lot of significance around the 1945 Grand Final, which was played six weeks after World War II ended. It was played at Princess Park. It's known colloquially as the bloodbath. It was played between Carlton and Souths, and essentially was what the name suggests. And as Flanners points out in the book, there was two players on the field that had been to war, but one of the reasons that he contended it was so violent was because there was a desire to prove toughness to return soldiers that were watching. So when you read that, what did you make of that section of the the book? I was confused. Okay. Why? Because I don't know why, as a player, that would be your intention. Mm. Mm. And it shows that ignorance, I suppose, pre and post. So going back to my grandfather, which is really only my own, t- only touch point with war, is that he said, like, pre, pre-war, pre he was like, this is an adventure, and post-war he was like, this is almost a, like an embarrassment or a sorrow or a shame. And I think that's the weird part of being like, we need to go and the players saying they need to replicate war to make the, make the return servicemen proud is kind of like, no, they w- surely they want to escape that. They've just mm. been overseas watching people die and now they have to go and mm. almost see people die. Mm. Like, and the, the, the rap sheet on this grand final was horrendous. Oh, and like some of the suspensions like, were for attacking umpires. Yeah, it was, it I, was so, as diabolical as anything we've mm. seen, as, as absolutely ridiculous and unprecedented as anything we've seen. And I don't know if anyone is directly quoted as saying that that was what they intend, are intending to do, but there's a very clear narrative link that Flanners makes quite mm. clear. Um, and I guess the probably the best summary of it was from one of the two players that did serve, and that was Carlton Centerman Clinton Wines. And his quote, when he was asked about the connection between the war and the match, he replied shortly, there isn't one. In football, you have to protect your body. In war, you have to protect your life. War is a far grimmer business. And for mm-hmm. me, that kind of summed up that chapter and where it sat in Flanagan's mind. Mm. Which is why I think when we... So come Thursday, there will be a moment where someone does something that's brave on the football field and a commentator will make the comment about how that kind of relates to mm. the Anzac spirit. And that's never, ever sit well with me. Because going back, the worst thing that could – well, not the worst thing because, yeah. Um, but, like, in the vast majority of situations, going back with the pack may result in some physical harm, mm. but it's not going to cost you your life. And it's not in a way that's going to be like everyone's consented to the acts that happen on the football field. So it's not it's not the same as war. It never will be the same as war. It's such a such a ridiculous comparison to make, and it seems weird. So it makes sense. It almost makes sense when you when you hear that thing, like when you hear that that uh, dichotomy of experiences by those players actually served. That we have pre-game entertainment on Anzac Day games because it's like this is not about. 
the war. This is about almost forgetting war, which is kind of Planner's book. Like footy is that. Footy is an escape from mm. the harsh realities of the world. Yeah, let's do something beautiful, not something brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, you, you do what the Warriors did after Christchurch and say let's play in a way that makes people think about how great it is to have the freedom that return servicemen's fought for, not let's not let's not act in a way that replicates what happens in war. Mm. Mm. And I think um I guess one of my things, and you think about it this time of year every year, but just even in the way that you talk about sport and the vernacular, it is such a so normalized to reach for a war metaphor or a war reference. Yeah, or it's, a, it's a, a clash. A, yeah. It's like, a battle. Well, Clash is yeah, and and but even beyond that, like there was an ad that ran, I think this week, and I can't remember where it was, where they, they kind of ran through things like next man up, you know, and how you know next soldier up, someone's injured, next soldier up, and it's mm. very very different to that. And I just think it's something that's worth keeping in your mind the whole year round if you're working in sport, as to just no, nah, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to find other ways to describe this stuff, which I think would be really really powerful because it's something at this time of year that is I think frequently discussed but then very quickly forgotten. Does that reflect into the coaching world too, though? Yeah. Cause that, cause, yeah. So I think you, it reflects everywhere. You should, I think you it should, reflects everywhere. But you shouldn't use it then? Because I think the the comparison of the metaphor is quite apt in football world because it is that role. It is don't don't think, do. It is that be a soldier. Like they want, They don't want you to hesitate. They don't want you to think about it. Go to the contest, win the ball, do your role. Like, I think that's what they use. That's why Clarkson uses the phrase next soldier up because that's literally what he means. It's like don't think you aren't good enough because if you do think that, you won't succeed. So that I understand why they use it, but you're saying that is it not appropriate anymore to talk that way or? I think you just need to be mindful of what those comparisons bring and like, and as that quote kind of demonstrates, I think you just need to know what you're doing. And I guess it's hard because there are football coaches that have used things like ancient Greek war narratives like Thermopylae hmm. as motivation or as a story. And it's, yeah. So where do Sen you... Sen out of war. Yeah. And... Uh, Sun Tzu's out of yeah, war, yeah. which I've read and I coach. So like, where do you draw the line in all of that? I just think it's something that as, a, as an industry and a media and as a football department, people just need to be really, really aware and maybe not, it's not maybe never using it, but it's just being mindful of what you're doing when you do that. Mm. And I think when you are mindful of it, I think you do then check yourself and you go, is there a better way of explaining this to my players? It might be that there's not. Okay. And it's a really simply, easily understand, understood bit of vernacular. Okay. But you, I think we just need to be really conscious of what that can do. So we're going to move on to the final question I wanted to ask you. So one of the really interesting chapters in this book is planning and driving the whole way to Darwin. Um, from Melbourne, and they left the corner hotel at, like, midnight, and I'm still not entirely sure. Well, actually, no, he explains why he went, but it was, it was a bit bit maverick, bit random. Um, on that trip, they drive through the site of the Coniston Massacre, which was the last massacre of Indigenous Australians formerly on record in the early... Uh, it was around... It was in the 1920s, off the top of my head. Um, and Flanagan writes, to travel through northern Australia is to be reminded that the memory of war exists in this land. And we talked a little bit about the frontier wars. So is this something that should be commemorated under the Anzac umbrella or is it worthy of its own remembrance? I I don't think it probably should be part of that Anzac narrative. Um, I think it's, as as Gordo, you were saying before, it's, it's, it's history that 
exists before that Anzac Day story started. So and and it's it's such an important part of our history that's so often forgotten. So I think it's really important that it should be remembered as its as its own own in its own way, not kind of just swept under that umbrella term of yeah. yeah. Especially when Anzac Day is either rightly or wrongly celebratory in a way. Mm. Yeah. Especially now when it yep. feels like it's 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 yeah, a phrasing like honoring and and remembering. Like it's not it's not remembrance, it's almost it's almost honorance now. So it started off as as remembrance unless we forget, but now it feels like we actually are about the Anzac spirit. And to include the frontier wars in that is well then we're essentially picking a side and celebrating I presume the victors because that's how war is celebrated as opposed to being remembered. Mm. And I feel like especially in, a, in an era now where we're having conversations about Australia Day and that date, I think that would be an appropriate time to actually, A, change the date, and then B, include events like this to yeah. say that, make that an actual day of remembrance and reconciling that as opposed to, yeah, folding it into, which yeah, is yeah. another, yeah, significantly, um, yeah, troublesome event. And I mean, just to be very clear with people that are listening, that's not what Flanagan is advocating for. And the book is a general discussion, not of Anzac myth, but no. of war as a whole and how, how the game has played around that. But yeah, I'm kind of with you. I don't know if it fits here, but I think it fits certainly somewhere else mm. as, a, as something that is under under understood and under commemorated. And I think, I guess, even thinking about Northern Australia and how little that is understood by people who don't live in there or who live south something like that drive is an incredibly informative historical experience and I just think there are better ways. Not everyone's going to have the time to do that drive. So we need to find more ways to actually make people aware of that part of Australian history. Um, And it's probably not something that is there for Anzac Day. Mum and Dad and Denny saw the passing out parade at Puckapunhill. It was a long march from cadets. Six Battalion was the next to turn, it was me who drew the card. We did Canungra and Shoalwater before we left. And Townsville lined the footpaths as we marched down to the quay. This clipping from the paper shows us young and strong and clean. And there's me in my slouch hat with my SLR and greens. God help me. I was only 19 